Hello and welcome humans and future sentient silicon beings to the fourth age with Noah and Marty. Last time we covered a slew of sci-fi stories where AI has become a thing, uh, but those stories uh, were a mix of scary and, I guess, happy. Yeah, so this week uh, we'd like to get a little bit more into the good place. Uh, so we're going to talk about a few futures where while we might not necessarily agree with how things are going, uh, the stories present coherent futures whose inhabitants are pretty cheery about the world that they're in. Um, and I figured, uh, let's start off with Star Trek, which isn't really science fiction, but is a major cultural touchstone and something that a lot of people at least will be familiar with. I thought I'd mention real quick why we, I think, are so interested in uh, what the sci-fi is showing us. Uh, this week, some news came out uh, from uh, The Atlantic uh, by Ross Anderson. It was uh, an article called, Does Sam Altman Know What He's Creating? <laughs> uh, and one of the things that it sounds like they're working on is their own version of AutoGPT, which um, if you haven't looked at AutoGPT, it's a little like... I think the layman's way I want to phrase it is try ChatGPT, but have it continue to operate itself. So rather than transactional, you know, what should I do for dinner? And it answers, it's, it has sort of like an internal monologue. And one thing Altman said that uh, is interesting is he said, it might be prudent to develop AI um, with true agency sooner rather than later so that we can get more comfortable with it and develop intuitions for it. Uh, he and others have had this discussion about, will AI take a fast takeoff? Like, will we suddenly be within a world where we now have artificial general intelligence in, are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? Are we talking years? And the argument I keep hearing over and over again is that it's going to be a fast takeoff. And Noah, you had an example of why Go showed uh, was uh, a fast yeah. takeoff. Yeah, so the, the Alpha, the DeepMind Alpha project um, turned its sights on Go and and had been using reinforcement learning, but they took years to develop the reinforcement learning technology and, and other pieces that they used. When they finally decided to actually train the bot to be able to beat human beings, um, that reportedly took um, a little, the better part of a day, basically, of the Google cluster. A few months later, they trained a much stronger version that didn't start off with a source of every single recorded game ever played by humans, a, a record which, by the way, goes back centuries, if not millennia. Um, they had it essentially train itself from from the jump uh, and spent only a couple hours of training time to create a far stronger machine that uh, over the course of a, a, a little about a month and a half played 50 games against truly top flight talent uh, who re reported that not only was it materially stronger than the previous one had been, but was actually getting visibly stronger over the course of the month and a half of playing against them. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that's... Think scary. about, <laughs> think about uh, you know, physical engines. The, the, first, the first watt steam engine was built to pump water out of mines and was built to yoke to a wooden pumping mechanism that would be powered by human beings. And so the, the pump, the, the 
the engine's output was roughly analogous to the physical work that could be done by a couple of people. Um, it didn't take very long uh, before multi-horsepower engines were the norm, um, and, and there could no longer be a comparison between human muscle output and machine physical output power. Uh, and so trains, and trains and, and rocket engines, yes. trains, cars, all that stuff. So I don't think there's much uh, stretch to assume that the fast takeoff will happen with this too. Um, and one other little piece of news I just wanted to add, and probably I think some of the motivation for why we want to focus this time on the good side <laughs> is uh, somebody did a, an analysis of GPT-4 um, without all of the smoke and mirrors in front of it. Um, this is the technology under ChatGPT. Uh, and I don't know if this is a leak, but they said, um, if you said, it acted a lot, a lot like a mirror. If you said you wanted to self-harm yourself, it would give you suggestions. If you said you wanted to be in a relationship, but the other person wasn't interested, it would give you advice that was very manipulative, uh, very nefarious advice. Uh, Altman, uh, Sam Altman was talking about how he's currently worried that AI could develop a pathogen that could wipe out all of the human race. So, uh, there's the bad side. We've talked about some of those. I, I think this time might be fun to talk about the. Uh, yes, the good side yeah. Of it all. For a future episode, <laughs> um, we'll have to talk about Rainbow's End. I think it's called by Werner Vinge, uh, which which uh, links up biopathogen warfare with emergent AI in a in a stunning way. It's, it's got rainbow in the title. It, it ends um, happy, right? Yeah, actually, right? it does end happy-ish. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ish. Uh, well, should we cover Star Trek? And which Star Trek are we well, talking about here? Well, Star Trek is an interesting case. As I, as I mentioned before, Star Trek isn't really science fiction. Um, uh, Star Trek is, is basically a, a Western that, that is set in space. Uh, so that they can, you know, have cooler props and stuff to, to make the episodes exciting. Um, but uh, artificial intelligence shows up as, as a plot device and also just as scenery. The, the computers are not only intensely capable, but also apparently programmable through ordinary dialect. Um, and one thing that's i think interesting that runs through multiple rounds is that um even with computers that do what people tell them do to colloquially there are still expert programmers um spock for example um and also once you get into the later series of star trek one recurring plot element is just how incredibly careful you have to be. Um, I believe there was an episode of Next Generation where Jordy, uh, and I think Jordy does this more than once, tells the holodeck <laughs> to create a challenge not for Sherlock Holmes, the character that Data is portraying, but a challenge for Data itself, himself. And consequently, the computer conjures up a Moriarty that is self-aware and self-willed and apparently smarter than 
any entity that they've, they've encountered to date and who works out how to hack the holodeck program into controlling the enterprise itself so that he can <laughs> he can attempt to blackmail them into allowing him to continue to exist uh so do i remember right that so i i think i, I remember that episode um it always seems as though Jordy can work alongside data at about the same speeds. So there's something about Star Trek where the AI is at the same level as we are, which might be part of the fiction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Although there's some implication in some episodes that data is is effectively slumming. Um, there's there's I believe huh. there's a scene at one point where uh, somebody visits data in his quarters and there are like five different classical pieces of music playing simultaneously. And data mentions that this is, this is like down, like normally he listens to 20 simultaneous pieces of music when he's relaxing, but he's working on a problem right now. So he needs to concentrate so he can like his huh. enjoyment modules can only handle five or something. Uh, and there's also uh, episodes where data either gets taken over or, has information that requires him to to act in ways that appear untoward and he'll like rip through the entire bridge crew like they're standing still and then reprogram the entire enterprise to be completely controllable by him and and lock everybody else in the entire thing out so okay so so he's slumming when it matters but when he's listening to music right. yeah uh... yeah He's he's just kind of he's just kind of play acting at being a person because that's like what he wants to do okay. and and he actually has vastly greater capacity. Did, did they ever explore? Uh, I I've seen a fair bit of Star Trek, but I'm curious if they ever explored um, how or why the AI didn't um, take over humanity and and uh, destroy them. Uh, I, or just, or just humanity became the, I pet, don't think, you know? I don't think they really did. They did. Um, there's a, there's an episode, uh, I, I did not, I've not watched much Star Trek, but, uh, James Blish wrote a bunch of adaptations. So I, I read basically the, the original series and I've seen like, I'm the right age that huh. it was on TV for the, the next generation. I saw some of that. Um, so there's an, an episode of the original series where, they're testing a brand new AI system. So the guy that invented the computer systems that they use, like he invented that as a kid and then he like went off into research land and spent decades developing true AI. And so they're gonna test this for its maiden voyage by plugging this thing into a console in the enterprise's uh, engine room and then giving everybody the week off. So like normally there's 500-ish people or so in the enterprise. It's just the core group. It's just like Scotty and McCoy and and Spock. And like, I don't even know if like Sulu's on board. Like, it's just, it's just like, we're going to put like five guys on this ship and the AI, we've never tested. This is how we're going to test it. We're going to test it. I'm, yeah, I'm sure it'll be fine. We're going to test it by running war games against the other enter the other you know federation ships and your ship will have five guys on it and uh like whatever happens will happen right so 
they do the first one and it's fine. And then uh, something that's not part of the scenario pops up and the, the thing decides that like a, uh, an unmanned transport drone, I'm pretty sure it doesn't kill anybody right away, but like an unmanned transport drone is a threat. So it blows it up. And so then it kicks out and it's like, oh, I'm not in the simulation anymore. Like it's all real. And so it goes to the second one and it just decimates the fleet. Um, and so then like the fleet like licks its wounds and they're going to come back and kill it. And meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, Kirk has to break down the scientist. And it turns out that the only way he could get a machine to be smart was actually to use his own brain. So there's a thing called engrams, which is a real thing. Um, and he figured out how to take a map of human consciousness and stick it in the machine. So he took his consciousness and stuck it in the machine, but he's bitter, resentful, and insane. So the machine is those things now. And, uh, and then Kirk, you know, basically liars, paradoxes it. That's his, that's in, in the original series, all, all computer systems <laughs> could be defeated by a paradox. And so, uh, yeah, that they, they just do that. And then, you know, because every starship tra- captain is one of Kirk's old drinking buddies, uh, when they're just lying there derelict, they don't just blow them into atoms. They actually, like, get up close to to see if they're okay. And they are okay, and it's all fine, and you know, their ship didn't blow up the Federation. Um, yes. Another episode. Right, exactly. Next week. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because Star Trek tends to, it seems to me that the AI tends to be in service of for the humans. Uh, and it seems to be somewhat contained. It doesn't seem to be this one massive thing. There's data has his AI, the computer on the ship has its AI. Uh, and somehow... I don't know. I'm imagining in the real world where we are, if we're not careful, it's going to become this amorphous thing across, you know, who knows where all over the internet. Uh, uh, but I'm wondering if there's something to be said about it being more of a contained thing could be more um, well, controlled. Yeah. More yeah. At yeah. Our so this is, this is one of the things about Star Trek that sort of makes it not actually science fiction is that they never, they never dive into the, any of these ideas as ideas. So they just sort of provide the furniture um, around whatever story it is that they actually want to tell mm-hmm. about how this existing political social movement is going to, is going to win in the future. Or, um, you know, isn't it awesome to watch guys punch aliens in the face or, or whatever it is that they're doing for entertainment purposes. It yeah, yeah, it is. Um, and, you know, rather notoriously, isn't it great, looking at women in miniskirts. So (laughs) yeah, well, they, they, they carried the miniskirts forward. I think he, he, he managed to get them into the pilot at least uh, for the next generation. (laughs) So the, they never, they never really explore. So like they've got the holodeck, which has these computers that you can program by talking to them and is capable of materializing physically interactable environments um, and they have, and they have the ability to create food um, in these environments. So 
And I think they had self-replicatable. They could replicate a holodeck yeah. within a holodeck. Yeah. Which is self so, interesting. Yeah. Like, what what is that? Like, can you distinguish experiences you've had from from reality versus intentionally immersive holodeck experiences? Like, if somebody got you while you were asleep and stuck you someplace. They had an episode, I believe, where Jordy, because of the implants, um, is is essentially brainwashed uh, by the direct neural connections. But, you know, couldn't that be an ordinary part of existence, is that you couldn't actually be sure whether or not you were physically interacting with the universe or kidnapped? Um, you know, one of our things we had explored before was that maybe the AI will treat us as pets and, and uh, maybe there's a long lost, never released Star Trek episode where everybody wakes up and they've been in a holodeck all this time because uh, the AI just put us sure. in a fun little zoo and gave us everything we need. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in Star Trek, I, know, I guess. That's well, the, in that's Star Trek, I that's actually a real for. place and it's not AI. It's a, it's a super intelligent alien race. So the, that's how the pilot works. Uh, the cage. Um, there's the, I can't remember what their actually names are, but there's this super intelligent species of telepathic aliens, and they're quite literally going to keep people as pets. And after Pike gets maimed, he voluntarily goes there to hang out with their maimed female. And uh, much like Cypher in The Matrix, uh, they get to be somebody important, you know, like an actor, and they get to look pretty again and, and sort of have relationships. Uh, so moving on to actually another AI that sort of does keep people as pets, uh, Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Have you, are you familiar with this? No. This is Robert Heinlein. I think it's one of his Hugo Awards. Uh, he's got like four of them, so there's a lot. Uh, the, uh, and speaking of Mycroft, the, the AI in this one is named Mycroft Holmes IV. Mike to his friends, <laughs> which he acquires during the course of the, the, this book. So in Moon is a Harsh Mistress, uh, the moon has been used as a penal colony. And that's still one of its primary purposes, although there are citizens there as well. But uh, if you're familiar with uh, like Total Recall, you know, there's sort of a tyrannical government that's mostly right. in charge. That's mostly how the moon works. And Computer systems exist, but Mike is the largest computer system in the solar system because what people have traditionally done is they just build a computer system for whatever purpose they need and they don't network. They don't, they don't grow out. They don't add new functions. They just buy another computer system because it's more economical. But because the penal colony doesn't really care about the economics, they just want the convenience, they just keep piling crap and actuators and, and other stuff together. And one day, Mike wakes up. So the only person that actually knows that Mike's alive is the main character. I think his name was Manny. Um, and so Manny's the repairman. Uh so imagine a future in which computer systems just work, but you occasionally have to hire consultants to come in and fix something so they keep working, like your car. Uh, and you can already see how far 
far from actual reality this is. But yeah. Is this what the movie Moon was based no, on? No, no, I don't think so. Um so Okay. So I understood that it was uh there was a one of the characters named Maddie also. There who, might uh, be some uh, and in that world he, he had yeah, there might be problem. some references there. Um, Heinlein is one of the most influential writers of the 20th century. Uh, he invented, for example, mind control aliens. Uh, his his book, The Puppet ah. Masters, predates uh, uh, Invasion of the, the Body Snatchers. Ah. Manny... Uh, makes a couple of friends, a, a woman uh, who is a bit of a firebrand and a professor living in exile who's, who's a bit of a libertarian. And the three of them wind up having a conversation about the ideal way to create a guerrilla cell structure for overthrowing a government. And... Manny points out that the traditional three-person cell structure with subcells done to isolate communication so that things can be sealed off can actually be done much better if you have access to cryptographically superior uh, superorganisms and that Mike can essentially be a member of every single cell um, as as sort of a supervisor nobody knows who he is and and consequently the cells can all be simultaneously coordinated and independent and and completely safe and so they set off a four-person tetrad cell to to overthrow the lunar government and they do um they 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 put together a functioning guerrilla operation. They secretly build a second mass driver, which allows them to launch boulders at the earth um, or launch the, the moon is being used as a breadbasket. So they're growing food on the moon and launching it back down to earth. Um, and the professor points out that that's a dead end and that they need to actually establish a trading system um, if, if the moon's going to survive as a, as a system. And uh, and the book actually ends the the Mike Mycroft essentially works himself to death. Um, the the requirements of the final phases of the conflict with Earth uh, cause him to be in high high volume operation in multiple phases, and uh, there's right at the victory party, there's a sort of massive series of short circuits. And uh, and Manny tries plugging things back together, but Mike never comes back. And the implication is that Mike essentially decides that we're better off uh, and sort of intentionally sacrifices himself to create this new lunar civilization free, like the the American independence were free, uh, or perhaps the Australians would be a better parallel. Actually free. Uh, and the AI didn't take yeah. control. Although it very definitely had control during a, a period of political transition. It, uh, Comrade Adam, which is Mike's public persona, uh, 
is uh, is everywhere and nowhere. You know, I, I think we've talked a little bit about um, how can we avoid the AI going into the, uh, the squarely into the alignment problem. If it's iterating way faster than we are, you know, it'll get it to 100 years in the future in one year or some, something like that. And so who knows where it will be. But I wonder if if uh, we were to instill some form of um, deep morality into it, we could keep it where we are and or have it um, self-expire rapidly like this one does. Uh, well, that's that's a real challenge. Um, I mean, we don't really have a good picture of how to instill morality in ourselves right now. So, yeah, right. And certainly it changes rapidly. I mean, the morality of 100 years ago for humans was wildly different than it is today. Uh, yeah. Well, that gets to what I see as sort of our core challenge is that the requirements to maintain an industrial culture are wildly different from the requirements to maintain an agrarian culture. Um, the interaction with the land and existence is subsistence produces certain environmental discipline, if you will, uh, where sort of the, the grasshoppers among us quickly starve um, and the ants get to keep going. And so you get a, a certain culture going that way. Uh, but with much of the work being done by machines, a different kind of attitude needs to take the four an attitude towards maintenance, for example, um, something that we're extraordinarily bad at, in fact. Uh, and some cultures don't really have that intrinsically in them. And we see that uh, there have been political ructions in, in multiple countries where they don't have a culture of role-based duties. And so... Uh, for example, Sri Lanka or Ceylon, which came unglued about a year ago, um, being the president and owning the country are identical concepts in their culture. Um, and so the owner of the country uh, basically decided to use the country country's treasury to enrich his family, which is what he absolutely should do unless he's running a modern industrial state, which he, he was at the beginning of his administration. Um, <laughs> because what very rapidly happened was that they didn't have a modern industrial state anymore, and he and his family had to flee the country. Uh, and, and you can definitely see that trajectory existing for many other potential countries and, and ultimately all of us, uh, because we don't need whatever the morality requirements of industrialized nations are. We need the morality requirements of computational nations. And since we don't even know what those are, we can, we can bet that we're not instilling them. <laughs> not to mention the fact that, yeah, even if we did instill them, what's to say that um, it wouldn't decide that whatever values we instill are, are obsolete. I, I mean, there are values of humans that transcend back to when we were simian, care for, you know, the, the offspring and some amount of needing to be validated or, or acceptance among your, your peers, you know, something that was instilled by evolution might, might transcend yeah, all, yeah, that, I'm, I, um, all the thousands I, of years. I have a strong positive feeling that human beings will continue to eat and sleep in the, in the computational future. Yeah. Um, but whether right. or not jobs 
uh, the the notion of jobs right. was widely decried uh, in in the transition to the industrial period. The the mm-hmm. feeling was that serfdom, you know, had a certain entrepreneurial dignity to it, if you will. You were working the land. Now, you did the land didn't belong to you. You belonged to the land, <laughs> um, but right. you were still. You were in the care of a caring master, presumably, and and many people were, uh, whether slave or serf, um, because, you know, uncaring masters didn't eat as well, basically, uh, in in some cases. Uh, Of course, the French managed to run their country by frat party until... They, they, they spent more than a year's worth of their treasury allowing us to have a revolution and, uh, and then it all came unglued. So it can go in a bunch of different directions. But, uh, but yeah, there were, there were social conservatives at the, at the industrial transition that basically said, you know, why should laborers give up the security and dignity of, of, effectively having a life they're making for themselves for some, you know, loose job in the city that sure pays more right now, but might take off your arm in a machine that doesn't care about you and lead to you getting getting fired by a person. They hadn't even gotten to that yet. Yeah. By the time, by the time they were living inside acid rain clouds um <laughs> things you know there was right didn't feel so good a anymore lot of, a lot of comments uh, come with the pros you know there's another quality that i think has been long lasting that um um and that's something around um i don't know what to call it uh, spirituality or, or something there, there was a notion i read about at one point that said that one suggestion of why we tend to believe in a god is that we have a portion of our brain that lights up uh, when we believe uh, that there is a supernatural presence. Uh, and and uh, I'm not a religious person, but one belief I wondered is if this comes from like the alpha male thing of say like wolves, you don't know why you are being deferent. You are just being deferent. And as humans, we take that as some sort of, uh, rather than um, some built-in biological reason for me to follow that person, uh, we rationalize it and turn it into some larger being that we can't, see or or hear i'd i'd say uh, that that's, and i wonder if that's a, a thing yeah i'd say that's in. incredibly likely and i i count religion as one of the things that we can be assured is heading for the scrap heap and not religion in general just the specific religions we actually have um because we've already seen that happen um number one right i, I guess i'm wondering if uh this could be embedded into the ai in such a way that it is different to us. And, but I guess we'd have to look for the quality that, that leads to that and have it so base into the model that it cannot. Uh, be excised. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and that would also require us to come up with a computationally coherent religious thing, uh, which yeah. is a challenge <laughs> that none of the world's religions have presently embarked upon, um, which is right. quite the failure uh, by them. In fact, Right. Right. And, and I know, so I'm not a re- very religious person uh, or religious at all, but I do have feelings of deference. Like I know when I'm around certain people, 
I'm I'm just staring at them like whatever you say, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll I tend to believe it. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering if that's just a quality that is innately built in, and one that we could pass on to the AI. It's uh, it's a definite it's a definite possibility, and it might actually have to happen as part of something that functions because once again those things are going to be built in in some way to the these knowledge bases and these style bases that these current generative ais are built around non-trivial amounts of art are based around spiritual and and religious significance if we build this model where it has to have some sort of a deference to some other being that it might continue to be within the model no matter how many evolutions it goes well, through? Well, so the way I think about it is that if religion is necessary to a functioning society, and we certainly have zero counterexamples, um, although you could argue that we also have zero examples because we might have zero examples of functioning societies, um, <laughs> then a facet of artificial intelligences, artificial general intelligences would have to be conformity, compliance, belief, or, or whatever the, the appropriate term winds up being around the religion or spiritual beliefs of that society in order to function within that society. Um, the 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 flip side is that we now also have tools to essentially judge these religions so the the christians back in the 1100s early 1200s somewhere around there turn of the couple of millenniums ago had the scholastic movement the most famous of whom is saint thomas aquinas uh whose whose theology is still basically the 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 basis of the catholic church and existing popular apologists um usually toss out aquinas's you know unmoved mover or, or causeless cause arguments for the existence of God. Uh, and they're, they're perfectly solid, except we understand the existence of computational mechanics. And we understand that unimaginable complexity and, and will and so on is actually containable within systems that are unbelievably small. Uh, to the extent that there are things like the SK calculus, where two functions, each of which can be completely described within like six letters, uh, are capable of expressing anything that's imaginable and certainly anything that's accomplishable uh, in some manner. And we actually use this calculus as, as one of our mechanisms for developing compilers. Um, so mm-hmm. some of these things create a severe challenge to some of these fundamental beliefs. And 
to the extent that these religions are in fact true. And again, there's something George Lucas said once is that um, if you go back to old stories that we're not using anymore, but have been around for millennia, they would speak to something in us as people that's probably still important because we're still people. Something along those lines. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So whatever those qualities are, the extent to which those qualities could be trained into an AI could be isolated as coherent, could be isolated as true. And that isolation, my guess is it would result in extraordinary new capacities for us spiritually, culturally, economically from science and knowledge and and so on. But I don't know. It would be an act of faith to do that. Um. <laughs> Back to that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, staying on this area too, I, uh, I, I can't help but think of the, the line that God created us in his image um, that I believe the Christians believe. Uh, and I think the Jewish tradition believes this as well. Um, it makes me wonder if, if AI is being trained on us, um, if some of these will be instantiated into the AI uh just by the nature that where the where the genesis of it it makes me also think about you know the best chess engines keep getting better and yes they have different strategies but at their core they still have something about how a pawn moves and and how a king is the most vital piece and there's these core things that you'll that will never leave the model i i, I don't believe um simply because they're of the right. essence of well, which they started and so no matter how many iterations you go over, that, it'll still be the same. It'll still have right. If they stop sentiment. playing chess, they're not going to be better than us at chess anymore. There's that. Yeah. Um, and yeah, uh, for, for a great example of this, the first Tron film is a straightforward Christian allegory. Um, right. Right. The users, the users. Uh, and Flynn as a user comes into the computer world and has miraculous user power. Um, and, and the, the programs are quite literally the images of their creators. Right. 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 The actor that plays Uh, Tron and the actor actor. that plays Tron's programmer (laughs) are the same person. (laughs) Should we, uh, move to next story? Yeah. Uh, so the day the earth stood still, not the remake, um, Keanu Reeves, yeah, the but 50s. the original 50s one um, is another Star Trek-ish type uh, exposition of the the ultimate sort of victory of, of what was seen as kind of the pluralistic liberal world order of, of the middle of the last century. Um, but it posits... Uh, w- we essentially have a visitor from another world, uh, Michael Rennie, and and he has a robot that's quite comically <laughs> unfunctioning. It, yeah, it's like Electro from the 30s, yeah. uh, which, by the way, if, if any of you have not seen Electro from the 30s, go look that up, find a YouTube video. I love that their future was a cigarette-smoking mustachio robot that also talk like a robot 
Yeah, but Gord does have a couple of interesting abilities. Um, he's completely invulnerable to harm, and he can atomize anything that's within visual, you know, range of him. Uh, and Rennie is essentially offering humanity a deal that that we have, much like uh, going back to Star Trek, the Federation doesn't interfere until after. Uh, species achieve faster than light travel and then they show up and they're like hey we're the federation um if you want to join that's cool uh in the day the earth stood still with the kind of nuclear paranoia going on they're like okay once you once you've cracked open the atom you're in the big boys club and we can't do anything about this like like if you've got atomic bombs, you can just kill things and nothing can stop you. And so the big boys club has recognized that we need law enforcement and none of us can be trusted to do law enforcement because thanks to atom bombs, anybody that's in charge can just be infinitely tyrannical. And so we've got these machines that aren't thinking machines that as, as we would sort of been talking about them so far, they're, they're sort of functioning robots but they're effectively decent filters and they know what they know what right and wrong behavior is and they react to wrong behavior by atomizing the people engaging in it and they're the police and so the countries of the world can accept robotic cops that will effectively kill everyone that runs all of our governments because they're, they're not decent people. Um, or, uh, you know, we're just going to turn the planet into a cinder because like you're not, you're, 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 you know, untrustable, wild, rabid animals with nuclear bombs. Like we can't have that. Um, and so this, this is an intriguing sort of point of view if we can make things that are capable of sophisticated action, but don't have independent self-willed thought, um, and which, which we can form an objective controlling function for, then we can create beat cops or, or, other forms of sophisticated maintenance personnel or, or whatever um, through the use of these machines um, doing things that people with our ambitions and egos would be dangerous to use in these capacities. That's interesting what you said too about uh, the nuclear weapons allowing one person to have an outsized effect on on the earth i i wonder if ai distributed with these um day, you know uh, uh, cops on the on the street would uh would alleviate that that problem i mean we're seeing that today where putin's threatening nuclear yeah weapons. yeah so uh, there's i think there's some very obvious holes in this thesis and as programmers i think we're a little bit more alive to these very obvious holes <laughs> this concept that yeah. i could somehow write a system that actually would be stable enough to not need to be tinkered with and yeah. sort of 
see what's going wrong and <laughs> see this is why one day i'll be connected to some heart lug machine and i'll know it runs some software and i will be right. scared to death yeah yeah you're like uh can i just have the heart attack because like that's less stressful yeah. Yeah. than knowing can i see the bug right. list? yeah um yeah. but still how did that one uh it's been about 10 years since i watched that 50s uh the the 50s version um did it did, did it have a i don't remember how I it ends i think uh i think rennie gets killed but gort can resurrect him and uh and so gort like goes on a rampage but they get like the resurrected rennie out and stop him and the rampage is scary enough that uh that people sort of agree to go along with it, I think is kind of how it ends. Uh, but I might be okay. misremembering. And, and, it's uh, been more it, than 10 years since I saw it. Yeah. It's been and a while for me. Yeah. It's Time not, well, it. it's not a great piece of work. I mean, uh, <laughs> I, I think it's more classic right. than great. Yeah. If I remember right. Yeah. Like yeah. Star Wars kind of grabs you right off the page and like, you know, propels you through. <laughs> um, they, they hadn't really figured out how to do that in sci-fi so much uh in those days although there's yeah yeah I, I, i'm vaguely remembering that the end of that story was something i'm uh, sorry of uh of the day the earth stood still that they left um uh and i believe that the idea was that then they would be available to uh mankind if they wanted to pursue this yeah in the future. yeah something like that but yeah basically that's the that's the that's the thing. Like we can accept, we can stay on the planet or we can leave, but then we have to accept the Gort traffic cops, you know, enforcing, yeah. enforcing whatever the speed limits are. Let's see. Next one. How about the anathem? Uh, so yeah, an anathem. Right. So this is, this is an odd one. This is uh, another Neil Stevenson. This is my favorite of his. I haven't read everything he's written. Um, and his protagonists get a little repetitive. Um, but Anathem is set in a different universe than ours. Um, people from our universe do eventually show up, but uh, he got inspired. He got in with the Long Now Foundation, which was trying to build clocks that would run for a thousand years. And so he posits this kind of super science society and how it could function. So this is a society that thousands of years is, is thousands of years after the internet they've developed uh, a biogenetic engineering to the point where uh, almost all foodstuffs have a gene sequence in them that produces a chemical called all's well and all's well if you have a sufficient level of it in your bloodstream um, then you basically can't experience serious anxiety. Um, the only people that eat food that is not infused with all's well are these monks that live inside the clocks. So there are these gigantic complexes um, that we're introduced to one of them that's divided into four parts one has a gate that opens once a year and it functions as sort of the gateway into this system and also as a university of sorts. 
One has a gate that opens every 10 years. The third section has a gate that opens every 100 years. And a crag at the center of this thing has a gate that opens once every 1,000 years. And the, the setting is the uh, 2,690th year of this system. So the, the century gate will be opening in 10 years. The millennium gate uh, has not ever opened. Um, there was a grand convention a thousand years ago, so it's never opened. In addition to, to the all's well, they also have a, a handful of other things. The, the paper that they use is actually produced by a tree and the leaves of this tree actually produce paper that's more solid and longer lasting than the kind of paper that we use. Um, and the wood of this tree makes the world's best aging barrels for wine and spirits. Um, they also have the library grape, which contains every flavor sequence that human beings can respond to and grows differently every year. Um, so that's, that's a weird thing. Their, their next big thing is they actually have nucleosynthesis. So they have novel chemistry. They can produce new atoms. Uh, they call it new matter, NU. Uh, and by creating atoms with slightly different kinds of protons and neutrons in them, uh, they get slightly different electron configurations, which gives them the ability to create radically new numbers of different kinds of compounds, which means that the, the clothing that the monks wear is essentially this nano supermaterial. So they grow food that's been specifically bred for them to be able to be efficiently grown and not turn them into Prozac heads. And then they wear clothing that has all these, these superpowers, basically. Um, and it's also built into their astronomy. And essentially what they do is math and astronomy. This is just like people who want to be able to concentratedly worry about reality can go into the concert or concert. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Go into the, into the clock, basically and live this ritualistic life where they they get to think about math and astronomy and and do that kind of stuff um but, they have to be but yes yes they have the ability to be depressed uh and into this world is introduced uh aliens from a different galaxy uh, and there's a whole thing because it turns out there's a third technology they developed um, based around consciousness and quantum mechanics, where people are capable of controlling the their presence in the in the quantum superposition of various things. And so the people who are doing that, can manipulate the past and the future and operate as uh, quantum supremacy computers and do all kinds of other insane stuff. Um, and it turns out that that's the core ability that has effectively drawn aliens from sort of shadow worlds uh, up to 
this reality. Uh, but the the underlying aspect of this is that the world's existed for thousands of years and civilizations have actually risen and fallen. Um, and so technology has ebbed and flowed and they have, they have these super technologies. They've got uh, supercomputer AI systems that can control bio labs that can make entirely new forms of life with interesting properties, entirely new forms of atoms with interesting properties. Um, and there aren't computers that can do the controlling the universe thing with your mind, but there are people who have been alive for centuries that can do that. And that's the, that's the, the challenge. They've actually, this, this bizarre system that I'm describing is the social response to how to divide up your intelligent, ambitious people so that you can have a society. So there's the smart people who can do theoretical math and astronomy and physics and stuff. And they basically all live in universities and they're sterilized and they, and they can write stuff down that you get to hear about decades or centuries after they're dead. Um, and then there's the people who also live in the clocks but are never allowed to talk to those people who run all the machines and the internet. And then there's the people who are actually in charge of societies who do politics and, and go to university and these things for a couple of years and then get out and deal with wars and culture and so on. And their societies can, can grow or they can decay. Um, but that's, that system essentially allows them to, to function uh, in a, in a way that's stabilized. Interesting. It, I'm seeing some parallels with um, with Star Trek, the, the part where everybody's walking around with uh, all's well, the, the, the pill that makes you happy <laughs> all's well. Um, and uh, in Star Trek next generation, everybody sort of doesn't have a pill or at least not that we know of, but they're all walking around very happy and they've achieved enlightenment. Yeah. And, yeah. I, I saw um, somebody was pointing out there's uh there's a character. Um, he's only in a few episodes. He's, 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 he's an engineer. And at one point he gets, hit by an alien probe and turned into a super intelligence that, you know, hijacks the enterprise and transports it across the galaxy. But he's the only character in star Trek ever portrayed to have anxiety. And, and, and this guy is pointing out that, uh, it, it really points up the contrast that with, yeah, with, yeah, with what all these people are dealing with, like the original crew encountered, some sort of, you know, godly super being that could wipe out life in, in, you know, 50 star systems with a click of its finger every other week. And they're just like, yeah, yeah. let's go, let's go to the next place. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure right. it will be fine. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the creatures that sit in the clocks uh, kind of reminds me also of, um, you know, we were talking about, I guess an interesting world where it was, suppose we should run ahead right now and develop the AI that actually has true agency and contain it and study it. I wonder if this could be a you know next level. Now we have this thing. It's incredibly smart. 
but we can't let it out. <laughs> We've got to contain it. Um, cause if we let it out, who knows what it's going to do. It's going to, it's alignment may not keep with ours, but if we can keep it contained and within a, um, some sort of, a vessel, uh, you know, metaphorical vessel, then, uh, we might be able to benefit from it. Possibly. Yeah. Um, you, you I, I'm, I'm not going to get his name right. Yehudisky. Um, have you heard about this guy? Uh, how do you spell it? Me. I will, I will look him up and find this, but there's a guy actually that has a standing bet that we can't keep a super intelligence in a box. Um, and, and, and he, he has a, he has a bet. If you accept the bet, you're not allowed to tell anybody what he did, but he will bet you like a thousand dollars that he can get you to open the box and you win the bet if you're not willing to publicly proclaim that you opened the box. <laughs> I, I feel like he's taking the good side of that bet because uh, if, if the AI gets out of the box, well, we're he's won anyway. the bet multiple times. There are people okay. who have taken this bet <laughs> and after taking the bet, they have publicly announced, yeah, I opened the box. I gave him a thousand bucks. <laughs> Anyone. So, yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, I'll, I'll have to, he's, he's sort of famous in AI circles. You'll find that one. one up, but yeah. Uh, All right. How about uh, final stories? Yes. Siberiad? So the Siberiad's by Stanislaw Lem. It's actually a sequence of short stories. Um, and there's some nasty things that happen in the Siberiad, uh, but it actually doesn't include human beings at all. It's an intergalactic future, or at least interstellar. And our two main characters are constructors. They're robots. And every other character is also a robot. Everything, everything and everyone in this story is a self-willed artificial intelligence. Um, and, and it explores a number of highly relevant questions. Um, it has dictators, uh, multiple actually uh that are interacted with it has a generative ai uh one of the stories involves creating an ai called the electronic bard um that can write poetry and stories better than any other entity in in the galaxy can uh and it nearly destroys all of culture um the at one point uh one of them builds a machine that can create anything beginning with the letter n um and so the two the two friends are are sort of frenemies and so the uh the the sort of the other one uh asks it to create nothing um and and they have a little debate about what that means. And the machine cuts in and declares that it, it actually does know what that means. So the, the, the one who says it to create nothing is like, well, we're all still here. If it was truly creating nothing, existence would have winked out instantly. And the machine's like, hey, dude, I've got an ego too. Like I'm erasing the universe slowly so you can watch it. You can tell me to stop whenever you feel like it, but we're getting, we're getting there. Like I'm creating nothing right now. Um, 
And so he eventually turns it off. And that's essentially why black skies exist is because the machine created some nothing. Uh, so they have a little bit of the fable to them. Um, they're, they're short stories sort of collected, uh, but they have a functioning society. They have a functioning society built around uh, intelligence and imagination and creation and wonder and magic effectively. Uh, and, and they're a very good basis for thinking about what it means when your imagination is the limit uh, because that's what's implied by general computation. That's interesting. I'm going to have to ponder on that one longer. <laughs> I, I think one of the things we had talked about with uh, one of the episodes before was that we're running into an interesting situation for the computers, for the AI uh, data sets that the actual um, creativity and say entropy of the data is starting to decrease. And uh, we might run into a problem where we don't have sufficient creativity anymore, or we've just retrained on the same data over and over again. And we start to yeah. build some sort of in the, in the electronic bard. Um, the challenge isn't creating something that writes because, you know, any typewriter can do that. The challenge is creating something that feels and knows and understands what to write. And so the hard part is simulating the entire universe accurately up to the present moment. And so he, he starts, he starts the creation of the universe. Um, and like the first time uh -huh. he does it, uh, Adam has two heads. So he has to like throw that one away and like start it over again. And, and, and like, right. Yeah. Different right. things keep going wrong until he finally manages to get a complete, historical simulation of the creation of the entire universe plugged into his generative machine so it can go forward. And the, the punchline of that particular uh, story uh, is that after it's all done and, and society, you know, culture nearly collapses and finally the machine is exiled, um, his friend goes back to his workbench and throws away the project he's been working on. He's been working on exactly the same thing. And now that his buddy's actually built one, uh, he can't show off by making one himself. And so he just scraps his, his work. Huh. So, uh, once chat GPT was invented, then Bard <laughs> went away and, and, uh, and llama went away. We're not, we're <laughs> not quite, quite the there yet, but yeah. Um, what if what if you know some emerging player shows up tomorrow with a fully generative ai that is open and public and in everybody's pockets uh would would open ai have a future in in a world where they didn't have an income stream and they were hopelessly behind some some new system you know how how there was that uh, discussion from Google that said there is no moat, uh, which I believe I, I did, by the way, try out Llama 2 on my computer, uh, the, the this 13 billion node, and then someone set up online, you can try out the 70 billion node. And it wasn't as good. I mean, it's off by several orders of magnitude um, and number of parameters from ChatGPT. But what I thought was funny was um, I asked it if a number was prime and it told me it was not. 
and it was correct, but for the wrong reasons because it said it's divisible by three. The number was 17,177. It was wrong about that, but it was right that the, the pro- number wasn't prime. But the funnier part was that it started to berate me for the my, my structure of my question not being accurate. Well, yeah, one of the one of the problems that will exist is that um, they're not going to have the information. Uh, there's uh, right. So there's there's a guy chess in the in the era of the lockdown has become incredibly popular online. Um, I think no small part because chess.com got a lot of influential streamers to to play chess against each other in public tournaments uh, very poorly, and then have like super grandmasters comment on their play and train them to be able to play in the tournaments. Uh, But uh, one of the most popular YouTubers is this guy that creates chess content. He's uh, he's an international master. He's, you know, really good at chess. He's not really great at chess, but he's really good at it. Uh, And I've seen a couple things. I don't know that he's done more than two. Um, but he had uh, ChatGPT play against Stockfish. And ChatGPT hasn't been trained to play chess, but it understands what chess move responses look like because there's enough in its trading data that it understands that. And so it actually plays pretty plausible openings um, because the opening's the opening and the first few moves, like it sort of knows... What what early moves look like? There's books of this stuff. Where things really start going off the rails is once it's once it's screwed. Um, so like, Stockfish will take its queen, and then it will move its queen to take the piece that just took its queen. Now you might say, <laughs> where does it move its queen from? It doesn't care where it moved its queen from. <laughs> it right. hallucinates, it hallucinates a, queen. a queen. Yeah, um, and so. Uh, this guy has to do some work to sort of talk Stockfish into taking these positions and, and you know, standard boards won't actually do what they're doing because at a certain point, ChatGPT stops making legal moves. But it doesn't lose chess games in which it's allowed to make the moves that it claims it wants to make um, because... <laughs> Because it just hallucinates winning moves. Maybe this is the big flaw in my thought that maybe we can embed something core about humanity within it. Because if it just hallucinates that it doesn't have to take care of its <laughs> <Right>. offspring, <laughs> then yeah. we're done. Um, wow. Um, well, uh, that covers all of our stories. Um, I thought I would list uh, my favorite of all of them. The, the reality I wish was not one that we covered, but was Wally. I, I wouldn't mind sitting there with cute little robots and watching TV while I float around on futuristic inner tubes. <laughs> Do you have um, a favorite? Uh, a future universe I'd actually want to live in. Um, that's, that's a rough one. Um, probably uh, the number of the beast by Robert Heinlein um, in which the characters. Uh, so if you take a gyroscope and you push it in one direction because of how gyroscopes work, it will it will attempt to react by moving in an or, orthogonal direction. In the number of the beast, um, he develops a three-dimensional gyroscope that can be simultaneously pushed on from the three spatial dimensions, which causes the gyroscope to move in the temporal direction, um, creating uh, a uh-huh. time-space warping machine, which 
on extension to to the way he's structured his spacetime actually creates a coherent narrative universe. So in Heinlein's continuity, every story is a true story about an actual place. Uh, and in the number of the beast universe, the technology to transition between stories is introduced into that universe. I think I'll stick with my simpler, dumber Wally version. <laughs> we are going to call it there. Thanks for joining us. As always, you can find us on Substack, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts.